Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Ah. The comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car-selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. If you look at what Secretary of State's office does, um, they serve between the a bridge between community and government as well. They have you know various office and duties. They're the official record keeper, much like my office. Uh, you know, they are very operational. And I think that's exciting to take what I've built and the city clerk's office to a larger scale and be able to impact more people's daily lives. Hi, everybody. I'm Fran Spielman. My guest this week is city clerk Anna Valencia. Before we get started, Anna, you are one of the few people I know who had reason to celebrate something exciting in a year called 2020 that most of us can't wait till it comes to an end. You gave birth to a beautiful baby girl seven months ago in the early stages of the pandemic when a lot of people were afraid to go to hospitals. What was that like? Oh, my gosh. It was a whirlwind. Well, thank you first, Fran, for having me on your podcast. Always a pleasure to chat with you. And I hope you and your family are doing well in this very strange time in the pandemic. Um, You know, I joined a group of moms this year that, you know, gave birth during a pandemic. And actually, Rihanna was born on April 15th. And I remember looking outside, it was snowing. I believe it was a city council meeting um, and everyone was wearing masks. Now, that would be normal, I guess, when you're in, in giving birth. But this time it was completely different. And it was, I, I'll have to, you know, it was a joyous moment, but it was also very hard. You know, motherhood can be very isolating as it is, but when you can't have your family over or share her with your friends um, or have extra support, it was definitely challenging, but she is a bright joy, just like her middle name. And we're very excited to have her as part of our family. Was it scary going to the hospital during that time? Yes. You know, I had a wonderful doctor and, you know, I tried very much just to stay focused on what she was telling us and not reading too much of the news. Cause I know there are many moms in New York city that had to give birth without their partner. And that for me was, you know, terrifying to give birth to my first child um, and not know if Riyadh could be in the room or have anyone in the room. But luckily for us, uh, everything the the hospital did a wonderful job. We gave birth at Northwestern you know, upon arrival, I had a COVID test. And um, because I tested negative, I was able to not have to wear a mask during the uh, during the birth, which, you know, thank God. But again, we were very lucky. And I know not all the moms were as lucky as we were. And how's the transition back to work? Can women really have it all? Well, I, I don't believe in having it all at one time. Um, I believe it comes in different ways, right? I mean, you're a mother, you know this, you have a career in journalism and, 
and a very good career in journalism. So you understand that, uh, that you can't have it all, I think, at once. I think it comes in different bits and pieces. I would say becoming a mom has really uh, made me on fire even more for women and working families. It gives me a whole different outlook on where, how far we still need to go, whether it's paid leave um, for both parents, because in two weeks, we all had to go back to work. And, you know, I think if we could, I, I remember being at three months and the baby finally got in a rhythm, right? And your body takes a long time to heal. There's so many things that are happening that we need more support system. I think if anything, this pandemic has shown the failed safety nets in our fabric. And when we look to the future and reopen again and go back to whatever the new normal looks like, I think we have to have real conversations on how to support our working parents uh, so that we can have the next generation be grown and, and grow up in uh, families with resources and opportunity and their families around. I think a lot of people have said that, and especially these parents balancing remote work with elementary age children trying to do remote learning too. I see my chief of staff go through that and it's a real struggle. So I definitely am more on fire about, you know, what can we do to bring more resources and as a state, as a country, as a city to support our working parents. So if something like this ever happens again, we're ready for it. And um, so that's something that I definitely want to look at. I remember crying the whole weekend before I returned to work after my sixth week um, maternity leave because of the guilt of it. Did, did you feel that mm-hmm. at all? Yes, I remember uh, driving in, you know, my office reopened in the summer and we took a lot of care and effort to make sure we were protecting our residents and our employees. And I remember going back in and driving in and talking to my mom on the way in and just feeling uh, nervousness too, because while we found childcare, I, I didn't really know how I've never left my baby with anyone, but my husband and I, so just nervousness about you just drop off this precious bundle <laughs> to you. Don't you think, you know, the person, right. And, and I think for me, it was also that, but now knowing that so many people love her and, and she's thriving and she's happy, it gives me peace of mind. And another person told me this, you know, babies are, they need just a lot of love. So right now don't feel that guilt because um, when you're present with her, it's quality time. So I really try to focus that when I'm with her, it's quality time and, and I'm present with her and my husband. So that's what we're really trying to focus on. So that mom guilt doesn't creep up on you. You announced this week after four years as city clerk that you're ready to make your political move. You're forming an exploratory committee to start raising money to run for statewide office, the Illinois Secretary of State's office that is now held and long been held by Jesse White. Why that office and why now? You know, I thought about that, Fran, when we spoke last too. You know, the Secretary of State's office is very similar to what I do now at the city clerk's office. And I'm sure people are wondering, why is she running for city clerk, you know? And what I love that we did in that office is we really, you know, took it to another level and showed people the different resources that are available to the community. And we became that bridge between community and government. We thought outside the box with different innovative ideas. We sought collaboration with community leaders, private sector. Uh, you know, we, we were working on openness, government openness as well with our city council modernization project that's coming up. And that kind of translates directly to Secretary of State. If you look at what Secretary of State's office does, um, they serve between the a bridge between community and government as well. 
They have you know various office and duties. They're the official record keeper, much like my office. Uh, you know, they are very operational. And I think that's exciting to take what I've built and the city clerk's office to a larger scale and be able to impact more people's daily lives. I remember sitting in the Secretary of State's office before the pandemic and waiting all day to get my real ID. Are there things that that office can do much better than it's doing now? You know, I think Secretary White has laid down a really good foundation. If you take what he's done with mobile prints and going out directly to the community to uh, make sure that residents had accessibility to his office, similar to what we've done in our office with our mobile city hall efforts, um, I think we can build upon that. And I will say that the pandemic really hit government hard because we weren't ready with the digital infrastructure needed to be in a, a world for remote learning or remote uh, work. I think that hit a lot of not just government, but other private entities. But you know, government's so hard to shift overnight and to do that. And I was like, you know, small scale budgets and budget constraints to do that work. And so even in my office, I saw how do we shift quickly to go overnight to remote city council meetings or to buying city stickers online. And I've seen a lot of, uh, you know, opportunities there as well with technology and how do we use that. So I definitely think that we can build upon what Secretary White has done in his office. And I definitely think there's opportunity to do that too, like similar to what we're doing in our own office. Like what? So for example, you see us on Zoom, right, with the city council. And typically we have to, uh, you see at the city council meetings in person, people have lots of paper and they you know, have to uh, introduce ordinances through that. So we had to quickly shift that because we're not meeting in person. So we've been accepting a lot of ordinances through uh, email, but how can we create something that's a digital platform to accept uh, large scale ordinances in the future? And could we move that way? Uh, looking at things like electronic voting so people can understand what I'm saying when I, you hear me when I'm taking the roll call, I have to repeat everyone's name, ask them to stay on mute. But if we had some type of electronic voting system, both remote and in person, I think that would uh, allow a lot of residents to have more openness in our government. So these are the th type of things I'm going to be doing in the future in my office. Um, and these kind of digitizing efforts we could do taking it to Secretary of State's office, too. And is that what the City Council Modernization Project is all about? Yes, that's what the City Council Modernization Project is all about. We've been working so with... So tick off, City what Council will that Center. allow the alderman to do and what will it change? Yeah, so City Council members, the mayor's office, law department, and AIS and, and other stakeholders have been working together on this for quite some time. Um, we're hoping to do some electronic voting, like I said. Um, we're hoping to create a type of digital portal that will allow the alderman to introduce electronically uh, Alderman Talaferro had brought up before about a digital co-sponsorships. Could they get co-sponsors with Alderman um, digitally as well? So those are some of the things that we hope to do um, in the future when we when we start this project next year. Now, Jesse White has flirted with retirement before, only to run again. What makes you think he's going to follow through on his retirement plans this time? You know. I believe that um, when I spoke to Secretary White, I know he's very eager to serve out his term. He's done a lot of great work. And I think that, you know, he seems it's time to pass the torch. And, and so, you know, that's the conversations I've had with him. And 
I think that he's done a great job in government service and we'll see, you know, everyone can change their mind, but uh, we'll just kind of take it day by day. You were appointed by Mayor Emanuel in 2016 to replace Susana Mendoza, who was elected state controller. You've only been elected to office once. What makes you think you can win statewide office, which is a whole nother ballgame and hugely expensive? And what makes you think you can raise the money that it will take to do this and that you have appeal to voters outside of Chicago? Well, I think what voters, if we've learned anything, they want people with their shared lived experiences. And, you know, I can't, I grew up in a you know working class um, family down in Granite City, Illinois, uh, similar to Secretary White, who grew up in Alton, uh, just 30 minutes of where I grew up. And I think people want to know that their their public servants have a vested interest in them. And I've always put people at the center of my policies. And I think that's what people want. And they want someone um, that can be a bridge builder like Secretary White between Chicago and downstate. You know, that can be a bridge builder between government and community. I think I have that. I know I have that. I know that I care about people. Like I said many times before, my parents are my North Star. The sacrifices that they have made for my family and my siblings to be the first in our families to graduate college and have careers. Um, I know what it took for them to do that. They've given up their dreams for their children's dreams. And I know there's many more parents out there that want, you know, affordable uh, health care and child care and education for their children. And so I really think I can be a very viable candidate when it comes to understanding people's needs and what they what their hope and government can be and bring that to life. I'm also a doer. You know this, Fran, you've known me for a while. I like to get things done. And that's what our residents and the voters want. They want people that have a track record of getting things done. And yes, may I've only been, you know, I'm coming up on my fourth year anniversary in January in office. I've been able to accomplish a lot in a short window. You know, city council modernization, fines and fees reform, the city key. Uh, there's been a lot of things that I've been able to do in my short time with limited constraints and resources. Um, and, and I think that's what I'll be able to do. I know that's what I'll be able to do for, for the statewide ticket. Like you printed, I bring a lot of energy and excitement. This would be the first female to ever serve as Secretary of State. We're about to swear in our first female vice president at the White House. So people are, are ready for it. And I think um, just I'm very encouraged by the responses that I've gotten so far all across the state. And I'm very excited to continue to explore and see if we can make this make this a reality. Now, you, you're a native of downstate Granite City, population like 30,000 or something. Yes. Uh, you are the first member of your close-knit Mexican family to graduate from college. Talk a little bit about what that meant to your family, how you got your start in politics, how long you've dreamed of being in politics, and what gave you the bug? You know, there's a couple things. So I remember going door-to-door -door with my dad. Uh, for a mayor's campaign in Granite City. And that was exciting to me to be part of it. Although our candidate didn't win, I saw my dad's you know, active participation. My parents have always been involved in the community, whether it was with our church, um, whether it was serving on different uh, community boards, um, working on recycling initiatives, you name it, working to mentor high school youth. My dad coached basketball. So I've always seen my parents give back. Um, they had instilled in me a faith in myself and a faith in God and a faith in people. 
And so I remember when my mom and I actually went on a, a college tour, we went to visit Carbondale and Universal Illinois and Mizzou. And I only applied to three colleges. In fact, I, uh, I think I would have applied to more, but I just didn't really know what was out there. I wasn't exposed um, to similar to many students here that don't get the same exposure. And I remember a high school teacher, Linda Ames, and if she's listening, I'm going to embarrass her now. Uh, she told my mom and I about how to apply for financial aid, how to apply for scholarships, how to get out there. And, and you know, thanks to that effort and that mentorship, I applied to U of I and got in and was able to get a scholarship for my tuition. And by the grace of God, I was able to finish. And that meant so much to my parents. I remember walking across the stage at the University of Illinois. And my dad was so proud and my parents were so proud. And now you're going to make me choke up here. But I, t- I carry that with me every day so that, you know, their sacrifice uh, is not in vain, right? That I can take what they've given me and take what other people have given me along the way and mentored me and opportunities to give back to others. And when I look back to my life and the legacy that I leave, looking back, how many people, small or large, should I impact? You know, how many people were I able to open that door for, whether it was in my office or mentoring or giving advice on their career? Because I definitely think there needs to be more Anna Valencia's out there. There needs to be more Tammy Duckworth and Lauren Underwood and other people that started in middle class families that are now serving in a much larger role. Uh, Because when we change that landscape, I think people will understand and trust government again. You know, the government and, and the trust between government and community has been broken for so long that We really got to try to find that trust and rebuild. I think that's going to be so important at a local level um, because, you know, like anyone you cover local government, it it touches people's everyday lives. And so that's why I'm really fired up um, to run for public office. I carry with my parents and the stories of others. Um, And I know when they listen to this, they'll be sharing it with their friends, uh, but they're very, very proud of me. And that means a lot. Now, after interviewing for a job you didn't get on uh, Senator Obama's staff, U.S. Senator (laughs) Obama's staff, uh, you were connected through a family friend to a job as a campaign organizer for the Virginia Democratic Party. Tell us about that experience and what you learned from it. Yeah, so, you know, going into my senior year of college, I talk about the importance of internships. It's so important. And I remember my dad was uh, painting on a house and he had a conversation and he was talking uh, to the family and uh, someone mentioned that their husband was running for judge. And my dad said, well, my daughter is so interested in politics. Could she come intern on, on your race? And so my dad helped me get on that campaign, uh, Dave Hilla in Madison County when he ran for judge. You know, when I knocked doors and did fundraisers and walked in parades, and that's where I kind of really understood that this is something I wanted to do. And the campaign manager from that job is actually who worked for Senator Obama and got me the interview that I didn't get. Um, but when I got that call from Virginia, they said, hey, you know, we're, we're hiring local organizers. Would you be willing to move here in two weeks? I said, yes. I didn't really know what I was getting myself into, but I bought a car, drove across country, lived in uh, supporter housing and, and worked and, you know, worked every day, seven days a week, knocking doors. And I remember my dad saying uh, to my mom, and he says he doesn't believe he said it, but he did. He's like, oh, this is a phase. She's in campaigns. She'll get a real job one day. Uh, <laughs> so I hope I hope he's now proud that I got a real job because I, ha- I have a business card. And I remember going to work for the state Senate and showing him, well, here I have a business card. And he, he was so excited. He's like, I never said that. I never said that. Uh, but that's really, you know, how I got my start. And uh I think it's so important because 
people don't know how to get involved in politics. They don't know how to get involved in government. Uh, there's not like a job boost at uh, the resource job fair in college. It says, you know, be a community organizer, be a political organizer or work in government. And one of the initiatives we've done in my city clerk's office is called Next Gen City Council. And we worked with hundreds of high school students here in Chicago public schools and their civics classes about how to get involved in government. You know, what type of jobs are there? If you don't want to be an alderman or a city clerk or mayor, what other jobs can you be? A policy person, you know, a finance person, a lawyer, outreach person. And so we've worked with them over the last um, three and a half years in my office on this program. And it's been tremendous. And it's another way that we give back to allow people to understand that there's a career in government. And and it's great to protest outside, but it's also great if you can get a voice and seat at the table and make the change within. You uh, you worked on campaigns for Mike Quigley, uh, the congressman, and Bill Foster, and then Senator Durbin's 2014 campaign. You were also on the staff of former Illinois Senate President John Cullerton. Now you want to go back to Springfield at a time when the House Speaker, Mike Madigan, is fighting for his political life. The Black Caucus still supports him because they feel that their ambitious agenda is is something that he would deliver for them. They kind of have him where they want him. But 19 Democrats have said they will not vote to reelect him as speaker because of the Commonwealth Edison bribery scandal. You said that Madigan should be replaced as Democratic chairman in the state, but you've been silent about whether or not he deserves another term as speaker. Why? Well, I think for me running for the Democratic ticket for secretary of state, and you asked me, you know, about this the other day about the speaker, I definitely think that we he's been coming to distraction when it comes to democratic politics. And, you know, you know, Fran, about politics, if you become a distraction and not a, and not a help to your other candidates up and down the ticket, then you should step aside for the good of the party. And so that we can elect Democrats all across the state. Um, and so that's what I stand by. Um, and that's what I'm going to keep, you know, you know, keep answering when people ask me. And just so that I think that we can bring together, unite our party and move forward, because that's going to be very important, especially in this next cycle. But speaker is where the action is. That's where the power really is. That's where his power has always emanated from. Should he be replaced as speaker? I mean, look at the cloud that's hanging over him. You've got a bribery scandal where ComEd admitted giving jobs and contracts and even a seat on its board of directors to political allies and associates of Madigan to curry favor with him and win the speaker's support for legislation benefiting that utility to the tune of $150 million over the last decade. That is no small thing. You've got his inner circle having been penetrated. His top aide, his closest confidant, Michael McLean, has been indicted. So what do you need to know about him and the cloud that hangs over him as speaker to convince you that it's time for him to give up the gavel? Look, like I said before, this is an issue with the state house and the legislative body, and I'm not an elected secretary of state now. I can speak on the behalf of the Democratic Party, which I am going to seek the nomination for. Uh, what happens there is, you know, totally up to the investigation and the investigation will lead to um, decide that. And I'm going to leave it up to, to them and, and the House. Uh, should I be so lucky enough to be secretary of state and actually be part of the legislative system? 
or be part of the state system, you know, I, I may have a different point of view, but right now I'm more focused on the democratic nomination, focused on the people of Illinois and being able to gain their support. But if Madigan is still chairman, will you be seeking the party support in slate making? Look, all this is going day to day. You know how this works for hand. So <laughs> we're going to, I'm going to keep, I'm going to keep running for the people of Illinois. I'm going to keep, you know, looking at this seriously and see if I've got it, what it takes as a path to victory and I've got the resources to win. Um, and so, you know, me, nothing's ever stopped me before. And if there's um, a path to victory, I'm going to take it. Right. But if he's chairman, will you seek the party's endorsement or run on your own? Well, we'll have to make the decision as we come. I mean, I said it's day by day, but right now I'm going to run in the Democratic ticket and and hope to get through the primary and then go for the general. During the Me Too movement, which seems like a lifetime ago, given all we've been through, you were quite open about the sexism you experienced during your days in Springfield. Tell us about that and about how you think Madigan handled that part of his scandal, which was a couple of years ago, for the behavior of his close aides. He was forced to cut loose some of his closest aides then. Uh, Kevin Quinn, Tim Mapes, uh, he admitted mishandling this and promised to do better. Well, and you know, that's the thing. I, I, I am happy when folks understand the serious of this nature and, and do what they need to do. Um, it doesn't change how people are affected or impacted and, and we can do more and we have to do better. I think the biggest thing is we have to believe women, you know, when they said they've been sexually harassed or sexually assaulted, we have to believe women and, and know that. And, and we have to think about how we, we talk about this too, and allow people to feel comfortable to report and know that they're not going to be retaliated on, uh, retaliated against. So I think that's incredibly important. You know, I, I love that I see more women in Springfield, uh, more women are in state houses and the state legislature than ever before. We have women leading at, at, at the, um, you know, Lieutenant Governor's office, the Comptroller's office, the Mayor's office, the Treasurer's office, the Cook County Board office, State's Attorney's office. So we have so many more women. I think that's going to make a tremendous difference on how we move forward when it comes to sexual harassment and sexual assault. Um, but Let's we have to believe women. Talk a little bit women. about your own experiences with sexism over the years. <laughs> how much time do you have, Fran? <laughs> start start quickly give us a give us a highlight of, of what's the worst thing that ever happened to you well you know it's it's there's there's been a lot of things sometimes it's microaggression sometimes it's you know small things that add up to be more you know one thing i will say i, I wish i would have speak that would spoken up sooner when i was younger but i was so afraid to say anything uh, I didn't want to be retaliated against. I didn't want to be the only woman. You know, you kind of want to be part of the boys club at the time. Uh, and when you're in your early 20s, you just kind of want to just keep your head down and work, keep your job. You know, you have bills to pay. You have student loan debt. And so looking back, I wish I would have said more or spoken up for my colleagues when I saw sexism happened or something that was inappropriate. Uh, so now... I, now that I know better, I, I want to do better. And never again will I stay silent. Um, and that's the promise. Have you I made ever myself. been physically uh, uh, harassed or just verbally? No, just, you know, verbally, I think. Um, you know, I had a reporter ask me once, uh, 
if you know I've been ever sexually assaulted I thought that was not a good question to ask your first question that could be very triggering if I had so I think it's on all of us on how we frame these conversations and talk about it but no luckily for me um it was just you know some sexual uh just you know conversations or inappropriate comments you know a lot of times about my looks um or or addressing and that made me feel uncomfortable but anytime anyone that has power that says something that makes another person feel uncomfortable uh whether you're women lgbtq or anything else that we have to start calling out and we have to start explaining to people why that's wrong so they can learn and change and do better the day you were sworn in as city clerk, I remember, Rules Committee Chairman Michelle Harris talked about your physical appearance in a, in a way that might have been a little bit insulting if the words had come from a man. She said, Anna Valencia is a woman and a pretty woman at that. And then she said that all the men in the council love you and your husband has strong competition. Do you ever get sick of hearing people talk about your looks instead of your brains and your drive? Well, I know Michelle and I love her and, and, and that is just a, a har, you know, harmless statement out. And I'm sure she wasn't even thinking when she said it. Um, but you know, I, I don't really care, you know, it's not, it's not affect me anymore. I just kind of learned to, I, I prove to people what I can do. Right. I know it's also been about my age. Uh, you know, people are like, well, she's young and you know, all that, but I, I prove, I get my, I get my work done. I'm a doer. I execute and people, see that you know you've seen me with city key over the last three years when we first introduced city key there were many aldermen opposed to it and didn't think it impacted their community and now fast forward in my last budget hearing those same aldermen support the program and now understand what it what it does and how it helps people and their communities so that's the thing that i focus on is the work and the people in the community and getting things done the Secretary of State's office is a patronage-rich office, and a lot of aldermen and ward commitment place their people there. Would you continue to play that game? You know, I think, you know, I think it's like an, uh, what I love about what's happening in government. It's a new day here in Illinois and in the nation. And what I loved about the city clerk's office coming in, what, what can we do to innovate and think outside the box and continue to bring you know, direct services to the community and make sure that people felt heard and empowered and knew that this was their government. And that's what I want to bring to the Secretary of State's office. So I'm more worried about how are we going to uh, educate folks on what exactly the Secretary of State's office does. I don't think people really know. Um, I'm more concerned about how I can help people in their everyday lives. And so that's what's important. Um, not of the past, but looking forward to the future. The mayor campaigned on a promise to eliminate the clerk's office, and then she abandoned that and decided to work together with you to eliminate the or reduce the crushing burden of fines and fees that had driven a lot of people into bankruptcy. Um, now her budget uh, takes advantage of an ordinance that Rahm Emanuel had but never used that authorizes speed camera tickets to motorists going between six and nine miles an hour over the speed limit. Is that a mistake? Doesn't that run contrary to what she said and what she championed during the campaign? Well, look, you'll have to talk to her about that. I don't really know why the decision making was on that and the Department of Finance for, um, for all that. 
So you have to speak to them about it, but you know that I've been a champion for fines and fees reform um, and that I consider a lot of those to be regressive. Um, in fact, we just got a grant and we have been recognized by a national cohort of the Fines and Fees Justice Center and Policy Link to continue to do this work, not here only in Chicago, but linking other cities and municipalities thinking about this work. Um, and the reforms that we've made are already a step in ahead of a lot of other municipalities. So I'm a champion and advocate and committed to this work, even whether I stay a city clerk or if I to win Secretary of State, I'll continue to be a champion for that work too. Would you rather see her roll that back and not take advantage of it? Well, I'd rather us- Especially because some of those cameras that we have already, the speed cameras, are only capturing motorists going in one direction, not the other. Well, what I'd really like to see for us to do as a city is a long-term view of all our fines and fees and an assessment of that. And how can we find revenue that can replace some of those regressive fees? Um, I know that a lot of cities, not only us, have relied on them for so long. Um, and I know the mayor is really trying to work on that um, and take that long-term view on looking at water and utility as well. And so, you know, it's not going to happen overnight. These are policies that have been decades long. Uh, you know this brand too, so we can't solve it overnight, but we do need to start tackling it each day. And that's what I've been really working on those last two and a half years. So what would you replace the revenue with? I mean, parking tickets alone are huge for the city. Well, but that's the conversation we have to have. And the other thing though, Fran, is that we got to look at the debt because some of these collections we're not even making. So they're just debt on the books. So some of this revenue is uh, not even coming in that we're seeing. And so that's what we've got to really uh, take a look at. And I've been working with the comptroller's office and Rashma there to really look at the data and see what the data says, because we're putting a lot of effort into something that we're not even really seeing. And so that's an important question. I think that's what you're seeing across the board of, of the fines and fees. You ran the IGA office under Emanuel. You rounded up votes for his budgets. Lightfoot's budget passed by a 29 to 21 vote we haven't seen since the 1980s power struggle known as council wars. Our property tax increase and the annual increases after that tied to the CPI was a 28 to 22 vote. Does this spell trouble for her down the road? I don't, you know, this is a crazy year and you and I both know this. It's a, we're in a national global pandemic that we've never seen. We had civil unrest this summer. Uh, we've had, I mean, she has had the stacks. I mean, just things come at her that a lot of other mayors have never had these type of challenges. So I think we're in a unique year and that's what we should look at it as a unique year. I don't envy the governor. I don't envy the mayor. I don't envy anyone who's a leader right now in our nation making your, you have decisions coming to you and it's which one's the least worth, you know, the work, the, which one is the worst decision you can make, right? That's not going to have impact. They're, they're not really decisions at all. And so I just, you know, I, I tried lightly to say that for a lot of our elected leaders, um, that this has been a really tough year um, with this pandemic and the decision-making. So I would just say, you know, 2020, it's an odd year. <laughs> very unique. And let's see what 2021 brings. Anna Valencia, thank you so much for joining us. Congratulations to you and your husband. Thank you, Fran. And congratulations to Rihanna for not crying during this broadcast. <laughs> and, <laughs> and we will see you all next week. Happy New Year. All right. Happy New Year. Bye.